Uh, the start of the week and plenty on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And Kevin said, oh my God, I can't believe that. That's Padre Pio. His face is in the banisters upstairs, Joe. And that has been sanded and varnished many, many a time. And his face is still there as prominent as when it first came. It's unbelievable. Something drew my attention to the picture. It was a blaze. It was illuminated. The very same as the sun was shining down on it. She has said, she's been quoted as saying, I did it for Marilyn. And that just grates me so much because she's not, it's like she read the script and took it as being the truth, but it's not. And we'll start in the afternoon. Liveline was dominated by stories of Padre Pio. Jim McKeown was Joe's first caller. How did Padre Pio save your life? Oh, stop. Um, I was very, very ill and I got a few heart attacks and I was in intensive care and eventually uh, like I, I was dying and... Um, mm-hmm. Then my my they, they, my family would call in, so I was in bed, kind of half drowsy, and they were all sitting around, and um, okay. my heart stopped. It seems, and uh, but it it got going again, and I uh, I said a prayer every day to Padre Pio, and uh, I come on in leaps and bones, you know, absolutely leaps and bones, and I have a genuine faith in Padre Pio. Mm-hmm. I think it started with my friend, John Paul, uh, was a great Padre Pio person uh, because his friend had had been a friend of Padre Pio's. Is this Pope John uh, Paul? Sorry? When you say your friend, John Paul, is that... Who John is Paul Valley, yeah. Well, he, oh, John his Paul friend Barry, okay. was actually went over to Italy and met Padre Pio. Okay. And, uh, there, there are a lot of unexplained And what did, well, what did the like, medics say about your miraculous recovery, Jim? I should... They, um, they were surprised, and I suppose I was a bit surprised myself as well, you know, uh, because I, 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 I was pretty bad, all right, you know. Mm. But um, touch wood, I, I, I absolutely come on and leave some bones. And uh, definitely there is, because I, I could tell you two or three amazing stories about my friend went out to um, a house around about 10 miles from Cork. There was a girl at a party in Manchester, and so some, I, I don't know why, mm. but expired a shot, and the bullet hit her in the brain, and she was very bad, uh, and he went over to Manchester and blessed the girl with um, relics of Padre Pio, and the next okay. day they took a, they took a, a, an X-ray of, of the girl, and the bullet was gone. Now, I actually met the girl, and she... She said, "Yeah, that, that's the story. She's, she's perfect. She doesn't know. She doesn't know how it happened." And mm. they renamed the um, the ward uh, Padre Pio Ward in England. Okay. And and Jim, just because it's 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 Padre Pio. Well, now you sell them out of the news in Ireland because we've a special uh, people have a special devotion to Padre Pio in Ireland. Is not true to say it was the fifty fourth anniversary of his death. He's a saint, by the way. Um, there oh, last, last week and there was a service I think it's a regular service in St. Saviour's Catholic Church in Limerick and about um, reading from the exam here about 500 people attended the Mass organised by the Pray, Hope and Don't Worry prayer group which is a lovely name Pray, Hope and Don't Worry which is devoted to, to St. Pio did Padre was that his motto Jim Pray, Hope and Don't Worry 
I, I think so. Yeah, okay. uh, like the other thing is like nobody. Now they have, believe. Like, you uh, see, the the prayer group has erected in a large photograph inside Saint Saviour's George, which they believe shows an apparition of Padre Pio appearing during the mass in Limerick. Uh, church in 2018. Two eyewitnesses, Mary Tyne and Richard from County Mayo, living in Limerick, and Nellie Cosgrave from Body Brown, County Limerick, said a bright shape in the photograph changed colour and evolved into a discernible figure of St. Pio dressed in his brown coloured habit because he was uh, a capuchin. Now, Jim, um, would you just explain to, to, to your younger listeners um, who was Padre Pio? Explain the stigmata. Well, he was living in, in, he was obviously living in Italy. He, he was ordained a priest in 1910. But the, one of the most amazing things was the, the um, he had uh, Christ, the, the, his hands and his side, there were two holes in both hands okay. and in his side and they were bleeding. And nobody could explain how they got there or how to, how to, you know, how to fix them as such, I suppose. And he, uh, and these were the marks. It was said these were the marks Christ had on the of cross. Of Christ, yeah, they were, yeah, the crucified Christ. But even when in Italy, he he, it seems when he visited somebody who who was self ill, there was a there was a huge smell of um, of of the flower was it roses, and uh, one or two people I spoke to said they got that smell, you know, when when he prayed to Padre Pio. Uh, people with cancer and mm. people who are a week to live. There are some amazing stories. And I'd be very cynical now when people tell me those things. You know, I checked them out. I actually got a letter mm. from the doctor in COH uh, telling me that uh, there was there was a woman, all right, and she had a few days to live. And uh, my friend visited her with Padre Pio relic and prayed, and there was a smell, it just smelled like a perfume. And the next day, a few days after, the woman was absolutely perfect. And Jim spoke about his feelings after being blessed with Padre Pio's mitten. Whatever happened, whether it was, uh, my mental attitude has, has gone very positive, because you'd be very down, you know, when you're, I was in intensive care for 56 days, and chews and wires and no telly and no visitors, and it's, it's, it's sort of depressing, but... When I got very, very bad in, and I, I, I was, I was, I was uh, on the way out as such. Mm. Heart stopped, and um, all the family were around me, and uh, it, it got going again. And for some reason, I don't know why. I just don't know why. And Kay was listening, and she called Joe with her Padre Pio story. <laughs> this is unbelievable. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. But most of the this stories are her. This is okay. this is true. Um, I had builders in the house, and um, we got a wooden stairs put in, and it was varnished. And then yeah. they were doing the banisters upstairs, and my husband was giving them a hand, and he was um, he was sanding down the banisters upstairs, and he stopped and he turned, and he said to Kevin, "Will you come in and have a look at this?" Mm-hmm. And Kevin said, "Oh my God, I can't believe that. That's Padre Pio. His face." is in the banisters upstairs, Joe. And that has been sanded and varnished mm. many, many a time. And his face is still there as prominent as when it first came. It's unbelievable. You can see his face, mm-hmm. you can see the high forehead, and you can see the beard, and you can see his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, but that could be anybody. Oh, 
no, it's not anybody. It's Padre Pio. No, no. It's the image of Padre Pio. Now, I had great faith to Padre Pio. I had um, breast cancer in 2093, Mm. and... um, I had a small little relic of Padre Pio in my hand and I kept that in my hand down, going down for my operation and the nurse could not believe it. It was still in my fist when I came back from my operation and I swear that he took me through and I never looked back after that. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely Padre Pio up on the... And I've taken uh, a photo. And you have, you have a photograph of it? Yeah, I've taken a photograph of it and sent it to many of my friends and they can't believe it. They said, my well, God. Send it, send it to us, send it to us. Well, because now, if, because if, I see, if I see an image, say, of someone with a high forehead, long face and bearded, I'd be thinking, I have a special devotion, which I have, to George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, would I see George, yeah. a thin, thinnish enough face... Would I see George Bernard Shaw because I'm mad about him or would you see Padre Pio because you're mad about him? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Because I have sent this to my friends and I've said to them, who do you think this is? And mm-hmm. Kate, it's Padre Pio. Well, that's Kay. Then Philip called Joe. Philip Scanlon. Okay. Yes, Joe. You run a prayer, hope and don't worry group. Yes. You were there in the church in Limerick. Yes, I was. And what happened? Uh, well... I suppose you have to go back to 2018, Joe. That was the yeah. first time St. Padre Pio appeared in our group. Um, there's a lady called Cindy Rusa from America. Um, St. Padre Pio still appears to this day. And um, we brought this statue from over in Canada. There's only four of them in the world of St. Padre Pio. And it was launched by the bishop in the Dominican church on Padre Pio's birthday. Okay. And um, my wife, Mary, was just after being diagnosed with cancer. So she was after getting cancer in nine places. So we were sitting at the front of the church. And um, I just seen Cindy stand up and take a photograph and sit back down. And um, thought no more, mass started. And she take a photograph with her phone or a camera or do you remember? Phone. Phone, okay, phone. Yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. And she called me over and she says, I knew Padre Pio would be here. And she showed me the phone, so it wasn't like she ran down the road and got a Photoshop, you know, she didn't never left the church. And yeah. um, I could see, as you see in the paper, it was the spirit of Padre Pio on the altar where there was no one up there, there was no light shining through the windows or anything. And, um, and that was kind of the first miracle, you know, that happened in the group. And... Mm. We never said anything about the picture. We kind of like, we had it with us and it was always like displayed in our group every month. And just there recently on the 23rd of September, that would have been the day St. Padre died. Um, Mass was on and the photograph that Cindy took four years ago, the picture we had up came to life again. Mm-hmm. And St. Padre Pio appeared in it in his role, but in life, and I think it lasted for like three or four minutes. And these two ladies spotted it, you know. She was trying to tip me in the shoulder to look at it, but Mass was on and I was kind of just watching Mass and that. And I, I didn't talk about it, but mm. I, I fully believe I wasn't meant to see it anyway. But the two ladies seen it instantly and um, it but kind of went down from but there. What's, you know? But what's the significance or the meaning of it, even if? 
I suppose it's just giving us confirmation for our group that it is, you know, that is blessed and that we're doing the right thing, you know. And who came up with the phrase, pray, hope and don't worry? I suppose, Joe, I came up with the name, pray, hope and don't worry, because Padre Pio used to always say that. Because when I was given the glove, it came from Cindy Russo. It was um, it was actually mm-hmm. Father Dominic Myers was Padre Pio's secretary back in the, the early 40s, 50s, and... He got um, sick in sick in 1953, and he was going back to America, and he was given two of the gloves of Saint Padre Pio, where they stayed with the capuchin stand for about 70 years, and after that, when the last priest died, they gave him to a lady called Cindy Russo, and she met a priest from Ireland, and she said, "I only need one of the gloves, and I want to give one of them to Ireland," and the priest picked me because I've been working with the Grey Friars in Myras for the last 12 years. And mm-hmm. um, they're known as the monks in Myras. And um, so when we got to love me and my wife, were like, you know, we couldn't believe it. Like, I, I knew I wasn't worthy. And um, two weeks after that, my wife was diagnosed with cancer in nine places. So it was kind of like, all right, God, you give me the glove to mm-hmm. go pray with people. And now my wife has cancer because I have a, Specialist child as well, who's full time. So I was kind of like, "How am I going to do this?" But I kept going, and on the twenty third of September, a year later, my wife got the all clear on Padre Pio's mm. feast day. So then it came back again, mm-hmm. and then she got the all clear the following year again on Padre Pio's feast day, and now it's back again. So yeah, it's been some journey, you know. Well, that's Philip there, and we'll come back to Liveline a bit later in the programme. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Jackie Cooney of the Irish Marilyn Monroe fan club was discussing the new film, Blonde. We spoke to you briefly last week about your concerns regarding the movie Blonde. You're the uh, person behind the Irish Marilyn Monroe fan club, so you're, there's no, no better person to ask about this. So I watched it, as I promised you I would over the weekend. You watched it. Tell me about how you felt as the film un- unfolded before you. OK, so um, I'm going to go a step further than you and actually say I thought it was a bad movie. OK. Um, not taking Marilyn out of it, I just thought it was really, really boring. And then they used um, shocking imagery and... Um, inaccurate scenes to kind of bring you back into the movie, kind so, of shock you back into it. Y- y- so, yeah, go keep going, sorry, go on. Well, just, I, I thought it was like every, I could say every scene in it that was shocking is inaccurate. It didn't happen or it didn't happen the way they portrayed. So her mother didn't abuse her. Her She wasn't involved in a threesome with those two guys. She wasn't, she briefly dated Charlie Chaplin. I think I said that to you last week, but she didn't even know Edward G. Robinson as far as I know. Um, and then she, when she went into her uh, career with Daryl Zanuck as a studio executive, that incident where she abused her didn't happen. Um, she wasn't ever abused in that sense by anyone that we know of. Like she never, she did talk about being abused from time to time in her childhood where she was, um, she was, sexually assaulted as a child by uh, a man who lived in the house with her but it wasn't something that she ever talked about in her adult life um, and there were no abortions you know the the thing with JFK her being dragged in I thought that was gross in the extreme 
and it went on far too long. It shouldn't have been in it anyway, but it went on far too long. And um, the well, way she... Yeah. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, what's left? You've just described the whole movie and every bit of it yeah, is... Like, that's, I mean, that's the whole thing, uh, it's, it, was, it, it, it focuses for ages on this threesome with Charlie Chaplin yeah, Jr. and Edward G. Robinson Jr. Or, and that never happened. So then then there was a lot on, obviously, abortion and miscarriage and so on. And, and you know, I thought... That you know what's actually gross about that as well, Ryan, is that Marilyn suffered with endometriosis. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's a condition in the womb where the, the lining of the womb grows outside and attaches onto other organs. Okay. And in her life, she had surgeries to... where They kind of laser or burn the, the tissue off your organs. And it, it's kind of used to try and help you conceive if that's, you know, what you're doing. Okay. And she had surgeries when she was married to Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller to try and help her conceive. So to put her in a situation where she's going in and being forced to have this... And I mean, even that showing the speculum being put, you know, from the inside. It was just yes. unnecessary, I thought. What, what about then, jo- Joe DiMaggio? Did he, was he, was there domestic abuse in, the, in that relationship? There are rumours of domestic okay. abuse and people saying that, was, that they saw bruises and stuff. But that was another thing. I thought that even though you didn't see it, the, the empty room, the scene of the empty room and you can hear him and he's after taking his belt off. And it's just, it's so, like, so graphic and assaulting to your your senses. But does know? that make it uh, like uh, as, a, as a movie experience, like a sensory experience that was a fictionalised account as, as they told, as they tell you, uh, makes it, means that they, they weren't trying to tell her story, it seems. Now, I found that very yeah, confusing. But that, that's like, that's the thing. You were saying, you at the start of the show, you were saying you didn't really know what was true or not. No, I, 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 yeah, I still don't. That's don't, yeah. the issue. It's like, if you go in and you don't know you're going to watch it. And like people are saying to you that they felt so sorry for her mm-hmm. and everything. Like her life was sad enough at times to feel that sorry, like to feel sorry for her. You don't need to add all this rubbishy victimization. There's no way that Marilyn Monroe would have got to where she was if she had been the way they portrayed her. There is no way she would never have survived Hollywood in the 50s mm. if she went around crying every day. So where, if, every if, scene if, she was crying in. She, every scene. That's I found it relentless and very grim um, and I thought she was excellent in it. The actress, uh, Anna Now D- my Darmus. fear is she's going to win an Oscar for it and people are going to laud her and praise her and say that she was great and she has said, she's been quoted as saying, I did it for Marilyn and that just grates me so much because She's not. It's like she read the script and took it as being the truth, and that that's what she was doing. It. She did it for Marilyn because that was her truth, but it's not. Jackie Cooney on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Evelyn O'Rourke was looking at inclusion in the workplace. As companies across the country face into their new workplace situations with hybrid working and Zoom meetings now widespread, for one cohort of workers, people with intellectual disabilities, there is a positive, if slow-paced, growth in the opportunities being offered by Irish employers. And it's a development that is badly needed. Now, Evelyn has been finding out more about this and she's here now. Good morning, Evelyn. Good morning, Claire. So you've been speaking to people with intellectual disabilities who are embarking on exciting and challenging careers and they want to spread the word about the need for more support. 
reports for their friends and peers because, unfortunately, the figures are still low. Yes, Claire. I mean, 17% Claire, of people with intellectual disabilities are counted as being in employment. And in the last census, there were 66,000 people with intellectual disabilities in Ireland. So there's a huge gap there. And as I heard again and again with all these conversations, you know, with the people with these employment opportunities and those without, it's very serious. I mean, it's obviously serious for so many reasons, but it's not just the financial realities because, well, think about this, the government's recent cost of disability report, it details that the extra costs incurred in just having a disability are between 10 and 13,000. And for people with intellectual disabilities, that figure is likely to be at the higher end. So the move to include people is really welcome. But as everyone said to me, it's not just on that human level, but really it's financially it's key too. So I started my conversations by meeting up with Thomas Murphy. Thomas is a great example of someone who is striving high. Thomas works in A&L Goodbody now in Dublin. And I went to visit him at his very posh, I have to say, and comfortable and clean and tidy home office in Dublin, just to find out a little bit more. I work a good bit in the home office because I'm one of four South Africans with an intellectual disability okay. on the board of Inclusion Island. So it's so tidy yes, in here. Oh, I'm yeah. very impressed. Would you tell us a little bit about your story, where you're at in terms of your career and how you've got there? Well, I work two days a week for A&L Goodbody Solicitors. I work in the general services department. I do the stationery and I help out in the post room. So before I started in A&L, kind of a few years ago, I had a job with Chartered Accountants Ireland. And I had that for eight months. And so after that, I was looking around, sending my CV out to different places. Then a few weeks later, I got an email from the HR department of A&L Goodbody asking to come for an interview. So... I went for an interview. Oh, that sounds quite nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was nervous going for the interview. Nice suit on and nice suit and tie and shirt and, oh, yeah, and tie. And I went for the interview. That went very well. So they offered me um, a job in the general services department, and I started that in November, uh, twenty fourteen, and you know it was on contract, between, um, contract basis, and then. I went to the head of my department, Pat Doyle, you know, to say I really loved the job. And a few weeks later, he called me back into his office to say I was being kept on permanent. And how does that feel for you to know that you have a permanent job that you like and enjoy? It's fantastic. It's a good feeling because when I found out we were cel- we were celebrating for weeks, my, myself and my family. So it's good that you, you have a permanent job doing something that I love, going in and out to work and kind of highlight disability in the office and promote it and so I love doing what I'm doing and a great firm to work for. Tomas Murphy there and Evelyn also spoke to Margaret Turley. Yeah, Margaret's a deeply impressive woman. She's from Kilkenny. She's a graduate again of the Trinity Centre for People with Intellectual Disabilities in the School of Education there in Trinity. And she's now also a permanent employee of EY, which maybe used to be known as Ernst & Young to some people. But this, of course, you know, this is a global successful company. And the reason Margaret is enjoying the work so much, she says, is because they're offering her high quality, varied and interesting work. She works, for example, with innovation and strategy department, supporting IT work there. But this isn't always the case. I was also told by people that often people are, you know, offered really limited, low level work. And this is something that advocates like Margaret and like the most that you heard there really want to challenge. So I went into town to meet Margaret at the courtyard there at the front of EY headquarters in Dublin, just to hear more about her story. I did a course in Trinity College. It's really, really good course. We did math, some arts. I did drama, computers and IT. I graduated in 2013. One of the coordinates 
Maria said to me, send me your CV and we'll have a chat. And then she was saying that EY would like to meet with me. And then I got offered six months trial. Oh, they're tough in EY. <laughs> like, you gotta earn your spot in EY. Go on, six months, okay. And then I got offered a job. And what does the course teach you, do you think, so well? Confidence will be one of the main things they give you. Even since joining EY, I'm getting a lot more confidence because I'm from Kilkenny, so I went to a special needs school. So always, all, well, through, all the way through. No, I went to mainstream to second class and then I went into a special needs school. You aren't taught to be. What's possible? Exactly. That was. Yeah, okay. But then when I went to Trinity, it was the opposite. It was always like, no, you can do this. And then when I came to EY, it's the same. No one wants you to fail. Everyone wants you to succeed. Like I remember the day when they told me that I got appointment and then I rang my dad. My dad got upset. <laughs> Myself, I can only imagine. I mean, for him to know that you were thriving. Exactly, and like plus like that he doesn't have to worry. I often have this conversation that just because I have this job, like I'm not going to stop here. I'm still going to try and, you know, do other things. Important for people to know, okay, just because you have a job, that doesn't mean, oh, Margaret has a job, box ticked. She has a job, but what else can she do? How can she be better? How can another aspect within EY or outside of EY even, Margaret can make the community a better place for people with uh, disabilities. Margaret Tarley there. Now, so we've heard from Tomás and Margaret. They had to work hard to establish their careers. But you've also been hearing from the other side of this, from the employers, Evelyn, and they feel the challenges too, because from their point of view, there can be a lack of confidence in knowing just how to go about supporting someone on their team. Exactly. I mean, speaking to employers and the team at Inclusion Ireland, which is the national voluntary organisation working to promote the rights of people with intellectual disability in Ireland. And they both say that employers can lack confidence, you know, in knowing how to support and include somebody in their company and how does it work so that it's a positive experience for both sides and everybody involved and they're saying this is where conversations need to happen to better inform employers so they can offer chances to include a more diverse workforce and to discuss the employer's experience of working with the Trinity graduates you probably heard Colin in the background laughing there I sat down with Colin Farquharson from EY he's Margaret's mentor and great friend I have to say at this point and he talked about the experience with the programme from their perspective. Over five years ago, we engaged with Trinity College School for people with intellectual disabilities. And we, why? What was well, the motivation? It was to create a truly inclusive environment within EY. Our purpose is to build a better working world. Now, that has to include everybody. Meeting with people with other abilities does challenge your own perceptions on thinking. Practical side, we heard about this programme in Trinity. It resonated with me in truth. I, I thought this was a tremendous idea. We have a job that is meaningful. The work needs to be done anyhow. Why it's not? For real, it's for real. It's yeah. not a make-believe job. These are serious roles. And within a month or so, we were introduced to Margaret Turley. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> but I was probably more scared than Margaret was on her first day. You have these preconceptions perhaps in your head as to people's ability. I know I was guilty on a couple of occasions of upsetting Margaret by thinking she wouldn't be able 
able to do something. And that was my lack of knowledge. And it's been one of the greatest aspects of our engagement with Trinity is the amount of learning the whole firm has taken on board. It just went from strength to strength. People suddenly woke up to what actually an inclusive environment is. The amount of families, employees who have a family member who has some level of intellectual disability or physical disability, they all came forward. They engaged with all of the graduates who we've taken on board uh, very openly. Look at you in your suit getting all emotional. <laughs> Well, it is, I, it's passionate. It, it, it is a tremendous outcome and it will grow further. We're very much supporting Trinity. We're designing a playbook, outlining how you get involved, what are the steps, and we're going to share that later this year with our client base and hopefully further afield. Colin Bergeson from Evelyn O'Rourke's report on Today with Claire Barron. And on the Ray Darcy Show, Stephen Fitzgerald, CEO of Golden Discs, was celebrating 60 years of selling music to generations of Irish people. If you were born before the mid-80s, you probably bought your first album there. Yeah, and it's a very emotive thing, right? Everybody remembers their first album. Um, And yeah, Golden Discs was was probably uh, where people bought their first album in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you... It's, it's like it's my idea been you know brought up in a sweet shop been brought up in a music shop but that's that was your life did you realize how how lucky you were yeah yeah we would have been dragged into the stores to work uh on summers and christmases probably well before we were legally supposed to be <laughs> so yeah i remember 14 and 15 and in behind the counter and doing whatever needed to be done yeah. Um, I had a little side hustle as well. I used to take the posters down out of the windows when they were changing them every week and I'd take that into school and I'd be selling them for like 20p or 30p, that kind of thing. Shaking Stephen's posters. (laughs) So even though I've worked in the the business for 20-something years, I've been selling this stuff for 30-something years. And it's your dad and your uncle. Who set it up? Was that it? My dad and my uncle set it up in 62 on Dublin's Tara Street. Yeah. And it was the Transatlantic Record Agency then. So they Tara, were, Transatlantic Record Agency, yeah, right? Yeah. So they saw a gap in the market. They were importing a lot of um, albums from the US, a lot of show, big show bands, Nat King Cole and things like that. And there, there were no distributors doing it in Dublin. So it went down really well. Uh, it was v- very well received by, by their customers. So they went on and opened another one on... Lippy Street, uh, there were US Records, I think it was, and then another one on North Earl Street, and then they were up on Grafton Street, I think, had Video Tone, and then Ireland's first shopping centre, 1966, in Stillorgan in South Dublin. They opened the first Golden Disc uh-huh. store there, and that was a great success. So they rebranded the other three or four stores as Golden Discs and then went on to open uh, well over 100 stores throughout the island. All vinyl, was it? Well, it started out vinyl yes. in the 60s, obviously. Yeah, and I think they were even doing eight tracks at one point. And right. then, of course, we moved into the, the cassette it's tape and then the CD arrived in the 1980s, which was absolutely massive, as you recall. And then that was shortly followed by DVDs, I think, in the early 90s. Again, absolutely huge sales in those. Uh, but, the, you know, the formats would keep changing. You might remember the late 90s, that three-letter acronym MP3 arrived oh, yes. and file sharing and all that. And that was a bit of a game changer, that one. Um, so what were the chats in your house then when, when you know, Napster was coming out and people were getting their music for free? 
uh, on the internet and that was your business. Well, it was very, it was a very tough times. I mean, we already had a lot of the big international retail players were here. Virgin Megastore, yes. our price, HMV, uh, Tower were here. Supermarkets were selling at below cost to get people in the door. Um, you know, you had now file sharing and piracy and a lot of people just said, well, this is the end of you and the end of the industry. So there was in the you, end, you this is the end of golden discs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we would have heard that a lot at the time and Apple set up iTunes and again, people said, well, that's, that's, that's got to be the end History, of you now. Yeah. And then, you know, e-commerce sites were shipping in from Asia and they weren't paying VAT. So they had this big price differential. Uh, a small US company called Amazon, they got into the game as well. <laughs> and again, we're leading it with price. So, yeah, it was a pretty contested space. Right. Was there a moment at any stage there? I'm, 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 I was trying to think when would it have been? Would it have been the late 90s, early noughties when it looked like you couldn't survive? Was there ever that moment? Oh, I think there probably were a number of uh, of points over the years where it was pretty close to the edge, for sure. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it was, it was pretty tough times and a number of times, yeah. Uh, your dad's still alive? He is, he is. He's 91 years of age oh. and he's in great shape, yeah. Good. Um, so, how many shops have you got now and how many shops had you got at the height of it? Uh, I think in total over the years we pr- probably opened maybe something like 120 stores but obviously some of those centres would be gone and some of those buildings aren't even around yeah. anymore. At, at the pinnacle I think we had 42 perhaps in Ireland and then maybe another half dozen up north. So I think that was probably the most at any one time. At the moment we have 22 stores and an online business. And what was peak? What was peak? Yeah, when were you selling the most units? With the most shops? I think probably in the 90s, even right. even with all of that competition, that, you know, the CD was just, uh, it was just such a ubiquitous uh, uh, very consumer expensive. product. It was when relatively look, when expensive. When I look back now, because I, I have a wall of CDs and the other time I take one out, very seldom, but you see things like 24 99 on yeah. a CD. yeah. <laughs> it was, I know. Like, yeah, it was quite expensive, really. When you when you dated that's three back three months to... of Spotify, <laughs> like it's mad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, people are saying the same now about vinyl, particularly just in the recent months. Stephen Fitzgerald, CEO of Golden Discs, for the Ray Darcy Show. Now, Irish woman Hannah Rose May is an actor and comic writer based in L.A. And she stayed up late to talk to Ryan Tuberty in the morning about her graphic novel called Rogue's Gallery, which has been optioned for a TV series by Don Cheadle. But first, where is Hannah Rose from? I'm from Ashburn, from Meath. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I travelled all across. I moved from Ashburn to London. And then I ended up living in New York. Then I lived in Miami. And now I'm in Beverly Hills. So with that in mind, then, I want to, we're going to talk about a, a, a comic book graphic novel called Rogue's Gallery that you're responsible for. I need you to do me a favor, if you can, which is to give me as much, and I may be catching you on the hop here, but the dictionary definition <laughs> of a graphic novel is what? Yeah, so a graphic novel is essentially, I guess, for someone who is unsure, is like a picture book. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, a story accompanied by art. A story with art? Like a a comic book? Yeah, like that of a comic book. Okay, but there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? I mean, in terms of what you can, you could have a a graphic novel really about the Holocaust or about North Korea or, you know, so tell me a little bit about that and how the the variety of, of things that can come from such a thing. Yeah, so 
technically, comic books are like single issues, and then graphic novels tend to be longer stories. So my comic book, for example, it came out as single issues, which are essentially like chapters of a graphic novel. So tell is, us, is that a little clearer? That's much clearer. Thank you. But tell us about Rose Gallery then, <laughs> and, and uh, give us the kind of the, the rough version of it, or what we can expect from it. Yeah. So. Rose Gallery is about Maisie Wade. She is an actress who has played the Red Rogue, a massively popular comic book character on a TV show for like the last 10 years. She's just gotten tired of, you know, the spandex suit, the exhausting storylines and grueling production schedule that she and the fans online, which tends to be super toxic. So she decides that she's going to quit the show and that leads to its unceremonious cancellation, which then prompts a group of, kind of crazed super fans to teach her a lesson and they dress up as the villains on her show and break into her house to terrorise her. I love it. It, it, <laughs> it. it is the dark side of fandom, isn't it? It's when, it's, 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 yeah. it's when celebrity goes toxic and pear-shaped. Rogue. Right? Yeah, rogue, exactly. Sorry, even more importantly. <laughs> so tell us about the genesis of the story then from your own uh, brain. Yeah, it's basically like a home invasion trailer that deals with the idea of what if the internet trolls not only were shouting at you on the internet, but they knew where you lived, which is a really scary... Um, it's also terrifying because it could potentially happen. Um, you know, the m- most relevant themes in Rogue's Gallery are obsession, toxic fandom, internet bullying. I wanted to tell a story that was, you know, terrifying, um, but that we see happen online today. So many celebrities are being run off the internet all because of the characters that they play on TV. There's a very small group of focal fans who find it difficult to differentiate between the character and the person actually playing that character. Okay. And this is happening, isn't it? <laughs> that, that, that people are kind of yeah. targeting these, these, these actors because they don't yeah. like the direction of storyline. The world has truly gone mad. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's like one actress after the other actress, or, you know, Kelly Marie Tran from Star Wars, she left the internet for a long time. Um, Ruby Rose, Moses Ingram. The list is honestly endless. It's really sad. It's the problem with social media. It allows you to be anonymous if you want to. And then there's people who take advantage of that and they say terrible things that are having to deal with the consequences. And Ryan asked Hannah Rose about fellow graphic novelist Declan Chalvey's hand in the publishing of Rogue's Gallery. Yeah, so, you know, there's a small community of Irish comic book creators, but a great one. And, you know, there's been very successful ones like Declan and Declan is a major Marvel artist who now he writes and draws his own stuff. So Declan and I had been essentially internet friends for a long time. I had followed Declan for years and supported his work. And when I wanted to tell a story of Rogue's Gallery, I knew that Declan was, um, had published previously with the publisher that I wanted to go to. So I asked Declan um, if he could take a look at my pitch and give me any notes about how Image might respond. And Declan read it and loved it and jumped on board and oversaw the whole thing. Amazing. What, how do you write a graphic novel? I know that might sound like a, like a basic question, but yeah. I, I really am interested because I've always loved yeah. comics all my life. I, I, it's, it kind of got me into reading in some ways. I loved whether it was the Beano or Beezer or Wizard and Chips or whatever it might be. And then yeah. the graphic novels I'm stunned by because they can take on such heavy, heavy political and historical mm-hmm. material. They're, so they're not to be scoffed. And I also think they're a great gateway drug, if you will, for younger readers to get into you yeah. know, maybe bigger novels at some point in their lives if they want to. So I have great respect for the graphic novels. So I'd love you to tell me about the, the process of trying to, you know, in terms of how you decide, uh, is it the picture you need to, in your, in, to be on the page or is, mm-hmm. it, the, is it the, um, 
the text. Talk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So there's a, you, you just touched on it there, Ryan. There's this like misconception, I think, with graphic novels where people who are unknown to them, I think that they essentially, a lot of people assume that they're for children. Mm. Um, when there's a lot more, there's something for everyone in graphic novels. We really, there's the genre, we touch all genres. So I think that most people start with their basic story. And then, you know, every story, every script can honestly be turned into a graphic novel. Mm. And we're seeing that more and more now. Um, Rogue's Gallery was something that everyone was like, I can't see this as a comic book. Like, you should probably just make this a script. Like, this seems more like a movie. Nobody really saw that, like, the vision of it for a comic book. And I think that's kind of why it's doing so well is because it's fresh. Um, but I think also that just shows that any story can be a graphic novel. So for me, I obviously come from an entertainment space. So I write like as if it was a script, as if it was like a TV show, because that's my thought process. And as an actor, I was very, you know, familiar with dialogue from endless auditions. So I wrote all of that first and I had the whole full, full character development. And then once you do that, the images kind of speak for themselves. And then with Declan, Declan had an artist in mind when he read the pitch for this that he knew would be able to bring it to life. So he teamed me up with Justin Mason, and he's also a Marvel artist. He's the, um, the artist on Spider-Punk for Marvel. And Justin and I then started figuring out the, what the images would look like. And then as the writer, you have to decide what each panel is. So, you know, in a graphic novel, um, say there's five panels on a page. It can be numerous panels, but... Yeah. Panels is essentially like the little boxes of imagery that you see. Mm-hmm. So as a writer, you have to then write panel one, such and such happens. Panel two, this happens. And like it can be as detailed down to like what they're wearing, the colors. And then you hand that to your artist and they like return sketches to you. And then you say yes and no or changes. It's quite a long process, honestly. You know, you're describing the way I would read a, a novel or a book, a novel, whereby I think most people have this. You kind of you you you're producing the, your film version of it in your head as you're reading it, and you're casting <laughs> it in your head as you're reading it, yeah. and you're location managing in your head as you're reading it. Yeah. Strangely, does that make sense? So you you must be doing something similar, with projecting cartoon versions of your your protagonists as you're as you're writing or thinking. Yeah, that's exactly. It's exactly it. It's very visual, because um, obviously it's a very visual medium. So I think that's also why comic books are becoming so much more popular in the adaptation space for TV and film is because you can see the whole story right in front of you. Like you can see the start, middle and end. There's no, um, nothing's really left up for question. What, what, what happened, I wonder, that how did Marvel and DC, which has to be, reminded me a bit like the Wild West uh, looking for gold. Mm-hmm. It, they struck a rich seam, uh, the movie people, yep. and decided, okay, well, this is a ticket to... To the to all the way to the to the bank in in some ways. So what happened? Was it a generational yeah. thing? Somebody, I mean, we always had. Okay, I had as a kid. It was obviously Superman and you know Spider Man, that kind of thing. Of course, that. But then something crazy happened about what 10, 15 years ago, where they said no, yeah. get every single comic in Marvel, every single character, and to greater or to worse effect, depending on who who was directing and acting and so on. It just took over. It did. It did. Yeah, what Stan Lee did is mm. exceptional and, you know, nobody has done it since and I'm not sure anyone ever will. Um, he, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's funny because I feel like nobody's really going to come out the gate with new superhero material because you are essentially competing with Marvel and DC and that is just one big machine that is unstoppable and unbeatable. Um, so I think that's why 
for especially for the likes of me, I can only speak for myself, but that's why I came out with essentially I created my own superheroes, but in a different medium and a different genre. So I took the thriller and horror drama because obviously we don't see that in Marvel and DC. Yes. Yeah. I, I love, I'm just looking at the cover of your uh, Rose Gallery now. I'd like a proper copy of it, by the way. So don't, <clears throat> don't be shy. <laughs> Um, three dollar, three dollars ninety nine. I remember when my my dad was in America once a hundred years ago, and he brought back two of these comics. He might as well brought back a Munchkin from Oz. It was so colorful and wonderful, and the fact that it cost dollars and not pounds. You know, yeah. they are they do have a certain you know shine and sheen to them. And there's been interest to have Hannah's work adapted for TV. You have had already interest into turning this into something. Is that a movie or a TV show or what's the plan? TV adaptation? What's the plan? Yeah, we had that. It's it's all been a bit mad. Um, it was we had so much interest prior to the book even hitting shelves, which is even crazier. Um, to think about it wasn't. I was all I was very baffled by that. That um, it, you know, people were so interested in it prior to even knowing if it was going to be successful or not. They were interested in the story in itself. They got very lucky that it ended up being successful because they could have hmm. taken something that wasn't. Um, but yeah, so basically, my team. When I finished the book, before I sent it off to my publishers and everything else, like before it got printed, my, I sent it to my agent um, so they knew what I'd been spending the last year and a half doing. And they loved it. And then they shared it with a bunch of, you know, Hollywood people. And then just a ton of interest just started rolling in and word got out. Um, and it kind of created this, like, crazy buzz. And we started getting crazy names. I knew how big the names were if I told my mom who they were and she knew who they were. I was like, oh, that's how you know that they're big names. Are you allowed to tell us any of them or is it just your mother gets that privilege? <laughs> I can't tell you who, because I'm essentially telling you who I said no to and God knows how that will spiral. I'll be cancelled before I even <laughs> began. <laughs> but um, I was actually in the middle of negotiations for someone else and then Don's team, Don Cheadle, as team and his producing partner Karen Smith Forge and she's worked on a ton of superhero shows they inquired about it and they were really interested so we held off on the current negotiations that we were doing so I could take the meeting with them and then I really liked them so we continued to take a couple of meetings to make sure that they were the right partner and yeah so essentially um I have given it to Don Sheedle now oh. I'm essentially it's nuts that I'm partnered with uh, an actual Avenger on my first ever comic book. <laughs> Hannah Rose May from The Ryan Tuberty Show and Rogue's Gallery, the graphic novel, is out now. And on Today with Claire Byrne, a lot of us will be vulnerable to back pain, particularly when exercising. So spinal surgeon at the Matter Private Hospital, Dr Derek Cawley, was talking to Claire about watching your back. So these injuries, sports-related back injuries, they can vary, can't they? But what are the most common ones that would come to you? The most common ones are definitely in our uh, ageing population, uh, whereby you have people who are much more active now at an older age, playing golf, swimming, cycling, and uh, then enjoying yoga or Pilates. Of course, the classic one is January, right, whereby somebody hits boot camp really hard, having not (laughs) exercised for six months. Um, and then they come to me the following uh, week or two after. So I guess it's important to recognise that a huge p- part of spinal function is core stability. OK, that's kind of loosely defined because there's a tradition that core stability is uh, about crunching the abs and that's not true. So when we talk about core stability, it's a circumferential strength that comes from our midriff 
that supports our backs. And because of that support, it gives you a kind of a pillar at the front to hold you up. Okay. Um, it acts as a protection for your bowel and your abdominal cavity and all that stuff. But most importantly, Claire, it provides a forced transmission from bottom to top, from arms to legs or vice versa. So if you were to design a 100 meter sprinter, you design somebody with really, really powerful, fast legs. OK, mm-hmm. so why then does Usain Bolt, for example, have such massive upper body strength? OK, it's because the force transmission from arms to legs or if you're to design a boxer, they've really powerful ties for the same reason. OK, so all of that force transmission comes through the, 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 the core stability, the spine, the back. So how do you get the core stability if it's not about crunching? So the core stability is, is first of all, our westernised description of core stability very much entrenched in what we do in physio. But you have to look at traditions such as yoga and tai chi and all of these uh, much older sports whereby there's been a, a consistent drive to make the whole lower midriff area stronger. And that involves... Uh, Exercise. So, for example, today's exercises that we would typically do for course stability would be the plank, okay, where you don't let your back sag, okay, um, where you're on your side plank, okay, the Superman or the locust pose. And you got all of these poses in yoga. You got your chair pose, your plow pose. These are all uh, the same, driving towards the same thing. Of course, probably the one sport that focuses most on course stability is Pilates, right? Pilates is probably which gen- which started after the First World War, actually, a uh, German guy, Joseph, Joseph Pilates, yeah. who was, believe it or not, imprisoned on the Isle of Man of all places. <laughs> I was right. reading about this recently. It's an yeah. extraordinary story. And it he is. developed this set of exercises because he yeah. was a dancer, wasn't he? Yeah. And actually, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting for me uh, because in Europe, um, the, the rehabilitation is the driver of health. Whereas in America, Europe, uh, sorry, America, UK, Canada, Australia, the, the surgical environment drove the rehabilitation. So the big budgets t- towards in Europe after the war went towards rehabilitation first and then all of the associated medical speci- surgical specialities after that. So they're really, really good and they focus a lot on the physio and the community and rehabilitation in the community and that's where it comes from. So, so a lot of work therefore has been promoted more so there and Australia obviously caught on. There's a huge amount of physiotherapy literature in our world comes from Australia um, particularly Perth, for example, a lot of work there on core stability, whereby they show that this is a big driver for arms and legs type of strength. There's no point in having really strong arms as a tennis player if, you're, if your core stability isn't right. Mm-hmm. And we see that actually amongst your professional tennis players. Some of them faster serves and some of them slower serves. And therefore you can see the difference in the core stability from one to the next. Okay. So Claire asked about the importance of the core so, so, for example, the core does two things. Your, your, your spine, because I'm a spine surgeon and, and I talk about the core because that protects the spine. And 15% of my patients need surgery, okay? But 85% of my patients don't need surgery. So it's important that I, I, I talk about the core or I recognise the deficits in their core. But for example, uh, the, the core is, is key, right? Now, some people have abused that. So the classic one is Tiger, one, Tiger Woods, who, who burned out his L5-S1 disc from driving the ball by a hyper-rotation of his core, okay? Uh, to the point that he needed uh, several surgeries on it and then ultimately had it fused. And since then, he's had surgery on the next level up because he's, he's burned that one out as well, right? So... Um, 
The function of the back, therefore, is twofold. One is it's a stable platform. So if you take a bird, for example, a bird is a short, really stiff spine because they need the wings to be able to be attached to something really strong. So you could say a bird is a really good core, right? But then the opposite is the dynamic effect, that kind of spring, the coil that you can wind up and wind down for your boxer, for your swimmer, for your sprinter. So they're the two functions of it. But we got to get the stable bit right first. Okay, what about swimming then as an exercise? Are you are you a big fan of that for people? Absolutely. Swimming is a really important exercise. It's it's a, it's one that we can do as we get older because it's not a high impact. It's not a collision sport we'll say and core is very important for that and all you've got to do is look at any of the professional swimmers to see that you know um, but it is a very good example of a lateral flexion uh, type of movement across the body like if you look at a, a fish as they swim um, most fish uh, it comes from the body the lateral flexion of either side of the body so that's really where it comes in particularly for your your oblique muscles either side of the centre So you're doing core work as you're, you're doing, doing core your cardio as you But as well as that right a lot of us sit down all day anymore Okay, so our core stability is weak because we sit at a desk all day long. The glutes become weak, the core becomes weak, and then your spinal extensors are too strong. The amount of people that come into me and say, oh, I have a really weak, ba- a really weak back, chances are their back's too strong. Um, and their, their glutes, because they sit on their hips all day long, so their glutes are weak. And then when they go to walk or run, they overuse their back. Mm-hmm. They become uh, fatigued in their back. That's where it comes from. OK, a couple of quick questions. Uh, 15 years ago, while lifting a sandstone flag, my back crumpled. Ever since, simple movements like bending, digging can trigger a collapse of the lower back. So we all know that story of where the toddler lifts up something off the ground and they do it properly. And you ask an adult to do the same thing and they stoop their back, OK? So that's really, really true because that toddler has stronger glutes proportionally than you or I, OK? So therefore, they bend their knees, they bend their hips and they're able to lift with a straight back. And oftentimes, you know, I'll hear a person not so much say, oh, I was moving a television. I'll hear the story of, I was just lifting, I was just leaving down a glass of water and my back went. So obviously there's an underlying baseline hyperactivity of their back muscles because they're overusing their back all the time. And it took one last thing for the straw to break the camel's back, pardon the pun. And they ended up with severe spasm and back pain from that. Dr. Declan Cawley from Today with Claire Byrne. I'm back to the live line and Nellie Cosgrave was talking to Joe about her experience in a church in Limerick. Now, Nellie Cosgrave um, was also uh, in the church of St. Saviour in Limerick on that day. And uh, Nellie, can you tell us what you saw that day, please? Hello? Hello? Yeah, Nellie, it's Joe here, Joe Duffy. Can you tell us what can you, you saw? Talk up, please? Yeah, can you tell us what you saw that day of Padre Pio, Nellie? Yes. yes. Can I can I tell you what I saw? Yes, please. Yes, yes. Well, on last last Friday was the peace day, but a very very special peace day of Padre Pio. Yeah. And we have this picture. We've several pictures of Padre Pio, but this particular picture is only about maybe a four by four or five, but um, we leave all open the altar rails. Mm-hmm. And it was taken, this particular picture was taken by Cindy Russo, who is an American lady terribly attached to the Padre Pio. And she happened to be in Ireland. And we were all having the mass at 11. This is about four years ago, and I'm just telling you about the picture. Yeah. And um, she was inspired to take a photograph, which she did. And lo and behold, she showed up uh, 
figure of Padre Pio all in white on the altar. Now, we have this picture and we bring it each month with us into, this, into the, the church. And I was three seats back from the altar, and the picture was on the altar rails, and it was at the elevation of the mass. And mm. lo and behold, something drew my attention to the picture. It was a blaze. It was illuminated, the very same as the sun was shining down on it. Mm. And at first it looked like a silver, and then it changed, and lo and behold... Um, I could see Padre Pio in his brown habit and his cord around his waist. It was as clear as daylight. And that lasted for about three, three minutes. And I nudged my friend beside me, Mary Tynan, mm-hmm. and she, I drew her attention and she saw exactly the same as I saw. And um, then it gradually faded away and the whole thing became like a, a blaze of red light yeah. on the, with Padre Pio was still uh, in the photograph, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the, as I said, it lasted for about five minutes in all and eventually the whole thing faded away and the picture went back to normality. That's all I can tell you. And Nelly, was there a message? Did Padre Pio say anything? Was there, was there what? Was there a message? Did he say anything? Did he speak? Oh, there, there, there were several... There were other people in the front. My son was up in the front. Uh, uh, Philip Scanlon was up in front of me. They saw nothing whatsoever. Like that, as I said, we were all concentrating on the... It was only my eye was drawn to the picture. I've, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And Nelly, how long have you had a devotion to Padre Pio? Oh, God, oh, way, way, way back, way back. I've always prayed to Padre Pio. I have no very special, I have no very special, yeah, but I know that he carries the wounds of our Lord. Um, He's had these wounds for 50 years. Nelly there on the live line with Joe Duffy. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself, till next time.